Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365. What will football look like in the future? That's a huge, complicated question with an incomplete answer. Football doesn't exist in isolation. With scientific advice talking about restrictions until next year, in my heart of hearts, I can't see games with a crowd going ahead until 2021. That will have massive implications. Now, we love the game and we want to accentuate the positive. But it is going to change fundamentally, isn't it, Seb? I can't see how it wouldn't, Mike. From a personal perspective, I think yesterday was a very sobering day in terms of timelines and what needs to happen for a little bit of normality to be regained. I'm aware of all the theories and all all the conflicting reports about start dates and financial implications, but I don't see how football can exist in the form that it was, that it was in, that it left us in. If these new restrictions are to be believed, if it's if it's accepted that we're not going to see crowds in football stadiums for probably the rest of the year, maybe even beyond that, I think it's absolutely the right decision, though. I mean, it, because also, can you imagine if the rest of the country was still on lockdown and still practicing social distancing and football was full steam ahead, let's do what we want? Because it's exactly the situation that it's still suffering from now because people are still talking about that game in Leipzig, which I reported from, and the, the game Anfield between Liverpool and Atletico. Like... It just looks incredibly reckless. So football has no choice but to kind of defer to the situation in the rest of the world. It's such a vast topic. I'm almost unable to process it. I mean, the football league clubs, as far as I'm aware, the structure of the the broadcasting payment is that the clubs get paid at the beginning of the season. Please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong there, chaps. Mm -hmm. Meaning that as of now, it's actually going to cost them money to play games. It's an incredible inversion of, of what we know and the kind of the history upon which the game is based on. So I, I almost don't know how to react. I mean, I, I know that's a bit of a cop out as an answer, but I, I don't I don't have a response for that, Mike. OK, well, I thought, let's let's try and simplify it then, uh, Seb, and almost split the question into sort of three sections. Yeah. You know, one, what the likeliest scenarios would be for a restart, then maybe look at the structure of the game potentially going forward when it does so. And then I, uh, I put some stuff out on social media yesterday and got a huge response from from fans and listeners. So you know we'll we'll um, dwell on that as well. Aid from your point of view, you know we've looked at Holland and their prime minister has said that there'll be no football in that country until September the first at the earliest. Is that a taste of things to come here? Do you think? You know we've got the UEFA meeting today as well, looking at the Champions League and Europa leagues talk about cancellation of the National League. Mm. Where are we and when we'll be back, do you think? Oh, look, who knows is the, is the honest answer. It is telling, isn't it, that, that Holland have made that call. It's the, it's the government, isn't it, of, of Holland that have, that have made that decision. That has ramifications, surely, for the rest of European football if, if they stick to it. So, so yeah, look, for, for me, that was, that was always going to be the most realistic start day. I was, I was always thinking... 
late summer, early autumn. It's really the pressure, I guess, coming from from the need to to recoup some of the TV money and, and, and to get the season done by a certain time. UEFA, of course, want the Champions League final to take place on the last weekend of August, which in turn puts pressure on everyone else to get their domestic leagues done and dusted by then. Personally, I don't, I don't see why... I don't see the rush. I just think it will be ready when it's ready. Uh, and the way that you're looking at, at the map of Europe, the map of the world, different countries are going to be ready at different times, aren't they? Australia are almost clear of the virus, according to reports. German players are already back in training. So it's going to be staggered, I would imagine, different leagues at different times. Personally, I, I'm disappointed that, about the National League decision because, you know, I look at it from a sporting perspective, just want some kind of extension, some kind of help here, maybe from the government who are helping a lot of, a lot of different industries, a lot of different companies. They protect football clubs because no income until 2021 for any EFL club via no paying customers through the gate will, will just cripple the game. I think the government have to subsidise wages until fans are allowed back in. I don't see any other way that football, as we know it, can be preserved. You know, if we talk, let's look at the National League, because there is a degree, not of quite of certainty, but certainly we, we, we get a, a, an idea of what the shape would be there. OK, there'll be an extra place in a 92 club football pyramid next season yep. uh, because mm. of Berry's departure. Mm. Do you think, Seb, it's a f- essential in terms of fairness, if nothing else, that Barrow are promoted whatever happens? In that particular instance, yes, Mike, because they're by far the best non-league team in the country, in my opinion. The league reflects that. It would be grossly unfair. Also, if you think about... If we think about the consequences of promotion and relegation further up the pyramid, okay, they're, they're described as being very pronounced, obviously, the television money. But the difference in livelihood for a club playing National League football versus League 2 football, League football is enormous and they've earned their right. And in these unique circumstances, unfortunately, because of Barry's demise, the opportunity exists to promote them. On that though, Seb, I'm, I'm looking at the table now, Har- Harrogate Town, they're only four points behind. I but, mean, it's it's not it's not beyond the realms of possibility that they could have clawed, clawed that back. They've scored more goals than Barrow, they've conceded less. I don't know, if it, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here. It's but don't you I, I think, think I mean, if I was a Harrogate fan, I, I, I'd, I'd be desperately disappointed about that. But Adrian, don't you think, in the, in the sense of like what what football league what football league livelihood is worth to a player at that level? I mean, if you were talking about a four point lead at the top of the championship or League One, I, I'd agree with you. But I think the sort of the 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 privileges are almost accentuated at that level of the game. Like I, I think it would make sense for me on the basis that there is a place in the football league to accommodate them. Um, mm. And I just, I don't know, like there's no, there's no, there isn't the same security that if you were to freeze the league, abandon it and restart as and when it's medically safe to do so, what sort of, is the opportunity going to exist in the same way that it would for a club further up the league table? Oh, further up the league pyramid, sorry. I'd, I'd, I'd consider the possibility of a two-legged playoff. I know, I know it might seem a bit left field. It's just that. It's but can you imagine? It, it, yeah, can you imagine if Harrogate won that though? Like the kind of the the mm. the, the conversation. It kind of it, it's sort of almost like it feels like it would defeat the, the mm. integrity of, of a league system in the first place. It become a bit more sort of rugby union, rugby league yeah. style. Wouldn't I just it? think. I just think with the. I, I don't have any games left. Uh, Thirty-seven games each played. Yeah, I mean it's, it goes to forty-six. There's nine. Nine games left to play. I think a four-point swing in nine games is 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 definitely possible. That that's that's all. I'm playing devil's advocate there. I just think if if I'm a Harrogate Town player, and and I see Barrow promoted, and 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 that's the end of the matter. It feels a bit harsh. If 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 it's played out behind closed doors, as it have it would have to be over two legs in a sporting sense. In a way, if Harrogate do win, at least it's been played out in a in a in a cup final type environment, like the playoffs. We don't complain that much when a third when a third place team loses to a seventh place team in the playoffs, do we? So I don't know. I I just feel automatically promoting Barrow if they cancel it shouldn't be a foregone conclusion. Okay, what about further up the pyramid? You know, there's been a revival of talk in the last days, couple of days, about regionalisation. Uh, you know, 
going back almost to the old days when it was third division north, third division south. Is that realistic? You know, I can see the economic advantages of that. Yeah, because you know, who would want to go from say Plymouth to Carlisle on a on a wet Wednesday? But also, you know, that would then have implications further up because I think there's a preponderance of northern clubs in the championship uh, as as it stands. So, do you think that is realistic? Looking below the championship, that we have a return to regionalised leagues. Yeah, if I could jump in here. Sorry, guys. The I spoke to the Tramir co-owner uh, Nicola Palios yesterday on this very subject. Actually, put the question to to her. I think she's one of the most sensible owners across the EFL. Speaks a lot of sense, and she was absolutely categoric in saying that that is something that her club would not endorse, and she doesn't believe. Many other clubs, certainly at League One level, would would back at all. She said that, that when you consider the cost of travelling for for the team and the staff, it's negligible in the grand scheme of things. Going long distances to games, she said. Obviously, for supporters, it will reduce costs, and and they might welcome it. But she said, in a sporting sense, it would be damaging, in her opinion, to regionalise it. She said, there's not a lot of appetite for that. Certainly not in the third tier level. Would you think, though, that further up, some clubs, and I'm thinking probably of the championship here, Seb, will actually pay for their financial recklessness? Oh, without question, Mike. I mean, I think we talked to you a couple of episodes ago about the ratio of wage spend to income. And at the championship level, it is, I mean, it's almost, it's barely believable. There are, I think, I think it's Reading, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Reading have spending 150% of their income on wages which is just uh, it's unbelievable so yeah absolutely i mean uh, but this is I, I i think i think this goes to the matter of the issue as a whole mike because it's this is the situation football never thought it would encounter football has always considered itself to be an incredibly stable industry in reality within a couple of weeks it's been exposed for what it is to be you know, built on sand uh, you know created mm-hmm. on the base of a fallacy so without question it's I, I, I would replace recklessness with the kind of the, I would say it's more sort of a senselessness of ambition. It's a, a lack of foresight. It's a, it's a belief that football exists in a completely different world to everything else, whereby you don't have the kind of real world consequences, which, okay, at the moment, they're pretty pronounced and unusual, but this is, these are recession-like conditions. And for once, football is not immune to them. So of course, of course, there is a, a comeback for these clubs now. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we've got to remember in, in, in the gloom is that, you know, the Premier League was, is and will be still a great sporting spectacle because of the quality of the football and footballers that it has attracted. Given all that aid, mm. must it be a priority that this season be finished? And even even if that means being creative, it gets finished. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been consistent on, on this and I think I think most people have... We have to finish it just for in, in sporting terms. Worry about next season and the logistics of it and, and, and how it's going to happen. Once we're almost once we're done and dust, dusted with this one, obviously you have to make plans. But next season is clouded in uncertainty because if we're talking about having no crowds at least until the end of the year, then in terms of fairness, integrity, it's, it could impact on on what we do with fans coming into grounds beyond Christmas. I, I don't know. I suppose it's the same for everybody on, on that score thinking about it. So one half of the first half of the se- of next season will be behind closed doors. The second half potentially with crowds, maybe maybe smaller, limited crowds where people are spaced out. It's it, it's it's really really strange times. But yeah, I I think you have to finish this season. And that's why I'm I'm a bit disappointed with the with the National League, but I get it in terms of the sustainability of, of, of the clubs and being unable to, to pay players. And that, and that is where, where I'm coming from with, with, with more support from above. I just feel that, that, that clubs need it because if you've had the rug pulled from beneath you, zero income through the turnstile until January, how can you be expected to survive when that is your main, main source of income? So, so look, I, I, Yes, I think football needs to go to the government and, and ask for a bailout here. Otherwise, it, I'm worried. I'm really, really worried that, that it will collapse. Hey, do you think there's a, there's a bit of a PR problem there? Because like I completely agree with you. But then when 
the public at large hear about bailout for football mm. they won't they won't picture the non-league clubs they won't mm. they won't have the nuance well they don't have the the benefit of the nuance mm. to this argument it's going to be a very difficult argument to win it's a very very difficult mm. concept to sell i would have thought but, but yeah i agree i do agree but also football football clubs are so valuable so precious yeah, to, to, to the communities i think for the public at large that it is important to have a local football team to support and and the professional game will return. It will, but it, it will return hopefully in its previous guise in the not too distant future. But, but if we're asking teams to, to play on with no income coming in through gate money, then it, I don't see how the players can be paid hardly anything you know it, it, it's it's going to be incredibly hard to to justify even a quarter of their wages when clubs aren't able to bring in anything that's the problem mm. I, what do you think would be the impact uh, on players contracts and careers you know when all this shakes down mm. will there be maybe fewer professional footballers will they be not be paid so much will basically an insecure profession become even more insecure. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. The squads are going to be trimmed down to to the bare bare necessities. I think that the wages are obviously going to have to come down. Players' expectations on on salaries will will have to change pretty dramatically, I believe. And and again, yesterday speaking to a couple of people involved in in clubs across the EFL, I believe salary caps are inevitable. Certainly in League One and League Two level. I also think Championship, it has to happen, actually. So so that, that will happen. I'm confident about that. But the knock-on effects for the people are what concerns me because football, I've been there. I've been an out-of-contract footballer, someone that's thinking, crikey, where am I going to be living? What am I going to be earning? Where, where, I, so much uncertainty. Will I even have a job? Will I have to start thinking about something else? And it, and it really impacts your life and it can you know, play havoc with your mental health. And I worry about hundreds and hundreds of footballers who will be frightened at the moment, yeah. A, about their, their finances, B, about whether they're going to have a, have a career anymore. And, and, I, and I want to make sure, I think football has to make sure in this country that that these people aren't forgotten and, and that they're looked after and guided in the months to come i think it's inevitable that hundreds of players hundreds of players each year lose their careers anyway but i think it could be it could be as much as double this time around yeah and and, and you know on that point you know, i saw at the fifth pro report where that spoke of the number of footballers with depression symptoms had doubled during the COVID-19 shutdown. Seb, is that a sign of things which are bubbling just beneath the surface? I mean, I, I think so, Mike. I mean, I, I, would, I would contest whether they're beneath the surface anymore. I think we've got now professional players talking about depression, talking about mental illness. I completely agree with everything that Adrian's just said about the need to look after the, the mental health of players that are, have been plunged into very insecure situations. But this is a potentially a disaster in, in, a, in a sort of the humanitarian sense because football is, is very good at sort of paying lip service to these problems. But what facilities exist to actually look after these people like within the game? We've talked about the PFA's role in the past and it's kind of... I don't want to use words like negligence, but it's it's relative indifference to the struggles of the professional player, the mental struggles of a professional player. So what facility is there? If I'm a professional footballer today and mm. I'm at a contract in June and I might not have a club, I might not have a profession, say I'm, you know, in my early 30s, where, where do I turn to? Who do I go to on the basis that I perhaps don't have the benefit of a, a university education or the kind of the knowledge for how to self-remedy these issues or the confidence to go to a doctor? How does the game look after me? And I think I think what's really important is that this isn't a situation exclusive to the pandemic. Like football's a really cold business. Might your books do a really good job of, of detailing exactly why that is. Now, when the world goes back to something like normal, Will the game learn its lessons from this instance and provide for people that are going to be in that kind of situation in the future? Mm. Well, I hope so. I really hope so. I've been there, as I said. And when I left professional football, 
I had zero contact, no, no support for anyone. No one, no one called me. No one, no one tried to offer me any, any guidance. I was just out there. The door was closed. I looked down to the horizon and it was like, right, what do I do? And luckily I had a plan in my head that I wanted to start a career in, in, in sports journalism and combine it with being a semi-pro. That was, that was my clear vision because I was fed up. I didn't want to be a journeyman footballer and, and, and football is sort of, I, I felt quite bitter about about how I'd been treated within the game, and I wanted out at that point. But but I was pro- probably in the minority there. A lot of players are lost, completely hey, lost. Can I ask? Because I, I don't have. I mean, I have obviously no experience of this. But when mm. you when you made that decision, mm. did you know of anyone that you could call to say, "Look, this is kind of what I what I want to do. Mm. What are my first steps? What are you know? What 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 should I be doing in the meantime while I am still playing semi pro? No. Is there anybody that? No, 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 no one. No, I mean the PFA are there for you, but you you reach out to them, and that's where I think it it's wrong. I think there should be some kind of exit strategy or, or employees, basically either of the PFA or by some by some organisation where each club has somebody assigned to looking after players that exit that club. And it's whether it's just, just through guidance, moral support, pushing them in the right direction. What do you want to do? I guess like careers careers advisors that you get at schools trying to you know give you ideas on what you might want to do with your life. People like that, someone independent, when you leave a football club and you don't join another, then you have, you have access to this person to help you. And, and, and as far as I'm aware that isn't going on and I don't think it's too difficult to set up I really don't especially for an organization like the PFA it it won't be that difficult aid I I worked in the Olympic system for three years and we had something which we promoted called ACE athlete career and education Mm. and that was doing the sort of thing that you just spoke about there Mm. is putting sport into the context of their lives and athletes lives you know this thing will not continue forever mm. you know you haven't found the, the the secret of eternal youth you will be left behind by your sport at some time when that happens will you be prepared for the rest of your life and that mm. was what that program did and i think it's really important mm. and on a broader point you know i think said that if you look at physiology in football, that's been concentrated upon. It's a much quicker game, more scientifically analysed. Do you think the mental side of football is the next frontier that needs to be crossed? Without question, without question, because I, I, I don't accept a separation between the two, Mike. I think that if we think about things like the physical impact on a player's life and that means not just playing the game but traveling across time zones and into international duty and having three weeks break eventually there's a mental cost and i mean what is for instance think about someone like i don't know son Hyung min who is nourishing his mental state when he's returned from international duty for the fourth or fifth time within a year i i, I think i think football thinks about these things in the same way that masculinity generally does in you know in society I think it still has a bit of a stigma. There's still a little bit of that that leftover, well, get on with it. You know, I mean, I, I'm only 35 and that's how I was brought up, not by my parents, but within my, my sort of education and within my group of friends. If you had a problem, well, tough it up, you know, get on with it, you know, solve it, be pragmatic. Now, I think sort of, okay, there's a younger generation of players now. I'm, I'm an old man, relatively speaking, but I... I still see that when, okay, when when Danny Rose spoke out a couple of months ago, that was an exception to the rule. It's good that it's happening. It sets a really important example. Marvin Sordell's another person, you know, but Marvin's retired now. Like sort of within the game, where are the where are the facilities to allow players to cope with what is? Let's be honest. Even under normal circumstances, this is a cut and thrust profession at the highest level, played in front of a global audience. What, where is the safety net for people? If you make a mistake in the Champions League final, who's looking after you after that? Now, I don't think football's asked these questions enough. I think it does a very good job of, of wanting to appear as if it is asking those questions. But I see very little evidence that it actually is. Yeah, when you say that, I was, I was imagining, you know, Carius, for instance. Of course, you know, of course. Someone who, an individual who sadly seemed completely lost. I suppose, Aid... Mm. 
how distracting is it as a player not to be able to play? Okay, you're used to injury. That's you know that comes with the territory. But now you're in a situation where you know players now do not know when they're next going to kick a ball competitively. Mm. They're in a limbo, aren't they? Yeah, they are in a limbo. But <laughs> the entire society is is in a limbo, really, at the moment, isn't it? So, so they're certainly not not on their own in that. I, yeah, of course they'll feel lost. Of course they'll they'll feel frustrated and they'll be down about it. And and I do worry for the mental health of of a number of footballers out there. I hope that they have got access to to people that they can lean on if they're feeling. If they're feeling low, I think you've just got to cling on. If I was a footballer right now, if I rewound the clock, I don't know, 20 years to my mid-20s, I would just be clinging to the fact that there is talk of the season finishing, that it will be players training maybe in May, football perhaps in June. And I, I, I would retain positivity via that. Football's not going to stop. It's not going to disappear from our lives. Football will continue to exist, but it's going to be less of a cushy profession unfortunately it's going to be it's always been cutthroat as Seb rightly pointed out it's really really competitive but it's also come with amazing rewards now those rewards are going to be less in in the future and for the short term the buzz of playing in front of a crowd is going to disappear as well and and that's going to affect players as well when football restarts certain individuals will be able to probably shut things out and play just as they always have. But I'm telling you now, a lot of others will be weirded out by, by playing behind closed doors. And I think that, that it might impact on, on, on their form and what they produce. So, so we'll look out for that, I guess, in the, in the months to come as well. Yeah, th- there was a huge response uh, yesterday when I asked listeners for their views on you know, the current situation. just want to go through a couple of ideas and, and views expressed. I'll start with Paul Fry. Now, he says, look, why not scrap next season entirely, then play out this season as and when to end all the arguments and debates and lawsuits? Fill in any time you've got left with cups and small wartime style leagues, possibly even some home internationals, maybe even bring forward the Euros so players get a rest before the start of a clean slate in the summer of 21. Now, that's talking revolution there rather than evolution. But there is a logic to that, isn't there, Seb? Yeah, I quite like the first bit about forgetting about next season for the time being and creating the the, the time to, to complete this season and preserve its integrity. What I will say, in terms of that, the more revolutionary aspects of that idea, I think football, what football is waking up to, its, to at the moment is that it doesn't actually own itself. We can talk about pushing... European championships back and we can talk about well let's do a home internationals here in a you know a wartime regional league regional leagues would actually be a very good idea for a lot of people not just players for fans as well but at the same time anytime you try and make a systematic change in the nature of the sport you've got a, a group of lawyers banging at your door because football has already sold the rights to everything that's happening over the next couple of years. So it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. f- football, football doesn't begin and end with UEFA, FIFA, the Premier League, the FA. The, these organisations, they, they sort of govern the game, but only as far as they're actually allowed to. So I, I think that's going to be, that's kind of going to be the next conflict between... It's a great football, idea. Yeah. yeah, it is a great it's idea. It's a great yeah. idea, but, but football will go bust. Because TV companies have paid for next season, or they've, or they've got the money there to, to and and they're basically they, TV companies prop up, prop up the game, don't they? So in terms of the finance they bring, so a, a non-season means billions, doesn't it? Lost, lost to lost to the game. Also, if you consider things like uh, you know, what about commercial contracts? Yeah. If you've got a sponsor, and I mean those contracts, given given how how big they are, they've got to be loaded with penalty clauses about what happens if you don't appear in front of a television camera a certain amount of times. It's the, the cost yeah. is enormous potentially. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Hey, I was going to ask about. There's a, a comment by David Rose. He says, "Look, as you and many others say, clubs are part of communities." Now, I'm sure many fans will come back, but will it be as regularly as before? What this crisis has taught us is that there are many important aspects to life, not just football and sport. Do you get where he's coming from? I do. Yeah, I think David makes a good point. Perspective its definitely given us a, a greater sense of perspective and where sport and football lies 
in the priority list. And with anything, once something's taken away and people get used to not having it, I think there is always a challenge to get those people to to change their habits and, and come back. So, And there's also the fear factor. I think a lot of people will be scared of coming back into big crowds, especially if we've been social distancing for, I don't know what, nine months. I mean, it's going to take a, a period of adaption for everybody, isn't it, to suddenly huddle together in inside a football stadium. And a lot of people might, might stay away I- initially from that. Having said that, I would imagine that the appetite for, for sport and the actual buzz of having it back again will probably supersede most of what I've just said and the appetite will maybe be greater than ever. But ever, but they, they, I, I certainly understand the point. And I think some people might walk away from the game and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to renew my season ticket. And, and that's a real shame. Yeah, there were a couple of observations. Billy Hush said, look, I bet fans will flock back, myself included. It's the opium of the people. Ian Taylor said the draw will be too great. I swore I would never support Leicester like I did before when they sacked Ranieri. However, I'm just as big a fan as I was before. Stefan Adams, I thought, summed it up really well. I've started missing it lately. I'm a Chelsea season ticket holder, and I guess if there's no football to watch for another few months or maybe a year, would it be the worst thing? I don't think so. But in saying that, I am missing it. That's quite a good balanced approach, isn't it, Seb? Yeah, we're all fickle, Mike. We are. We are. We are. We are. Because if you think about the different things that have happened in the game and the sort of the 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 opportunities people have had over the years to walk away potentially, and yet they never do because it comes back. I also think what's really important here is the context within which it reappears. Because if it if it turns up at a time when life is still quite stark, when there is you know when a distraction's needed, that's going to play into how people respond to football again. Because if it becomes like I I don't know at what uh, stage these discussions are, but I was reading yesterday about the possibility of free to air Premier League football. Now I think pigs will fly before that happens. Personally, on the basis of past past behaviour, but if that were to happen and it was to become this kind of white knight figure, anecdotally, then all of a sudden football is going to be this great elixir, this this catalyst for for normality. And we're going to put all of these grievances behind us. I'd love to say that there's a sort of there's a there's a line in the sand. There's a point at which I say, right, I've had enough of this. But I don't. Is there any evidence of of any of us reacting to such a point? Mm, no, <laughs> it's, it's a really good point. My my big concern is will people enjoy football significantly less when there's no crowd? And I genuinely feel that that's a a problem, and it might impact on. On, on TV and and their approach to it in in the short term as well because the crowd make it they make a real difference they do and we're about to find that out I I, I also worry that yeah that that some people might just say oh, is football all that I'm not, I'm not I'm not I'm not you know putting words into their mouths but some people might think oh, I'm not I just don't enjoy it like I used to when there are no crowds so. So hopefully we can, you know, miraculously find some kind of vaccine and, and, and be able to get people back into grounds because it won't be the same without the supporters. Yeah, I, I suppose we all need reminders of how good it can be. You know, we, we do get examples which are uplifting. You know, I'm, I'm thinking there of, of Gareth Bale, you know, giving a million pounds to COVID-19 programmes. David Moyes going around as a on a, a vegetable van. But I suppose at the moment, the only football we're getting is in the form of almost pure nostalgia. Now, I, I, I'm really enjoying the BT Sports series of individual club highlights in Europe. Uh, this weekend, we're going to look at Chelsea's great nights. There are four games. The final in 2012 against Bayern, the 2-2 draw with Barcelona, 4-0 win over Napoli and the 4-4 with Liverpool in 2009. Let's look at a couple of those if we could, guys. Aid, mm. let's look at the, the Bayern final. Mm. When you think of it, you know, Drogba's redemption, Czech's penalty save in extra time, the shootout. It was a huge game. If you think about it, that was... 
in Bayern Munich's backyard, quite literally. The late equaliser by Drogba, the drama of the penalty shootout, which demanded that he score the, the winning pen. You know, that's 107 years of history fulfilled that night. What are your memories of that one? Well, I remember it really, really clearly because it was the night before my wedding and I'd been out <laughs> with my family uh, and um, we'd had a meal and then I said, we can't watch the football. So we found a pub and, and we sat around watching watching the final. Now, it was, it was, I don't want to go into the details, but I, I was in a slight legal dispute with Chelsea at the time. Um, so they weren't, <laughs> so they didn't, it didn't come to anything, thankfully. Um, but, at the time Chelsea were my absolute nemesis and I hated them with a passion so so this was not the way I wanted to 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 go into my wedding day but there you go I'll put that one aside uh, in, in in a purely sporting sense it was an incredible backs to the wall effort wasn't it I mean it was amazing because Bayern was so much better than Chelsea they absolutely you know they it's intense pressure Chelsea was a patched up team. Number of players were out injured or suspended. They relied heavily on Petr Cech, who, who probably produces one of his, well, it, it could be his greatest performance in a Chelsea shirt, but but Chelsea fans will probably point to, to other games where he was equally brilliant, I'm sure. But it, it was almost peak Petr Cech. And the Drogba storyline was, was brilliant as well, wasn't it? So no, it was, they fluked it a little bit, I think, in terms of... The, the way that they got to the final as well, Chelsea, rubber the green went their way. But but also, you have to give them credit for their resilience, great character, good team spirit under under Di Matteo. And, and they never gave up. I mean, the ribbons were, were actually being put on the trophy, weren't they, uh, in red and white when Drogba equalised famously. So, so, no, it was, if you're a Chelsea fan, this is, this is a really, really special evening. And, and those involved should feel incredibly proud because they weren't the better team. They weren't the best side in Europe, but they won it. And and full credit to them. Yeah, the, the, there was a redemptive quality to it, wasn't there, Seb? When you think about it, that defeat on penalties to Man United in, in, in that pouring rain in Moscow uh, in 2008. And I suppose that win against Bayern summed up not just the team, but the club itself in terms of you know, we talked about resilience and discipline and organisation and also nerve at, at crucial times. I think that came across really well that night. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, the way I look back on that now, I, I think of it as a sort of a, a triumph that came from inside the dressing room. So you look at the characters. I mean, Abe mentioned Peter Cech, but obviously Drogba and, and Frank Lampard. Like, there was always, back then, there was always this notion that the Chelsea dressing room was unmanageable and that if they were challenged in any way by anything, that would lead to disaster. And, you know, of course, history records that that was frequently the case. So it's this sort of, yes, it's highly improbable, but also you have you have this spine of, of familiar characters surrounded by people that never should have been there in the first place. You know, people forget. If you, if you look back at the Chelsea team, the Chelsea players who took part in that final, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely unbelievable that a side of Bayern Munich's power and resources couldn't overcome like Ryan Bertrand started Boston War was it was it was in that side like it's 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 absolutely bizarre on a personal note though I was living quite close to Stamford Bridge at the time and being a Spurs fan and having just been eliminated from next season's Champions League by that result AI will hate Mario Gomez for the rest of my life um <laughs> absolute fraud of a player you couldn't couldn't hit a barn door um, <laughs> but I could probably have done with every drunk Chelsea fan in the whole of London celebrating beyond part as they walk past my house at like 11.30 that night. That was, that's not, uh, Adrian's, Adrian's legal dispute probably tops that a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't have particularly fond memories of that night. Uh, that's funny. And by the way, by the way, David Louise played that night and, uh, and Gary Cahill, brilliant, both of them. And, and, and they, they won't be remembered like John Terry will be remembered as a, as a as a true true blues legend but on the big occasion those two did rise to it on, on that particular night so that that probably shouldn't be forgotten as well i think louis had a torn hamstring for mm. a, a, like an hour of that game or something <laughs> it's absolutely remarkable yeah he scored one of the penalties didn't he yeah he did yeah brilliant penalty and, and you you mentioned john terry there aid you know obviously he was suspended for that i don't think i'd ever seen anyone 
where is despair so openly as almost like a badge of honour on that night? Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> must have been so hard for him. So hard, must have been. But look, it's just. It's just the way it goes. He he got used to sort of missing out, didn't he, on the on the big occasion? That's the sort of footnote to to what was an amazing career. He, he yeah, he wasn't able to don the shirt in in some of the big biggest of occasions. Yeah, look, a lot of people didn't feel sorry for him because he wasn't the most likable likable footballer out there, John Terry. But but personally, um, I you know no 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 cross to bear with him and. Yeah, I, I think it was really, really unfortunate that, that he missed out. Yeah, let's look at the other game then, the, the 4-4 in the second leg of the quarterfinal in 2009. That ended up with Chelsea winning 7-5 on aggregate and meeting Barcelona in the semi. Um, now, that looked all over after the first leg. Chelsea had won 3-1 at Anfield, um, but Liverpool came back, a couple of goals to equalise everything. In the end, it, it came down to, to Frank Lampard and, again, someone who embodies that football club now, you know, obviously as a manager. Um, again, memories of that night, Seb? Chaos. Absolute chaos. <laughs> so I was, um, I, was, I was working for a design and build firm and we had a um, we had this little meeting room upstairs with a TV. We were watching it in there. Awful job and I was terrible at it. So it's not a particularly happy time <laughs> in my life. Um <laughs> But just madness. I think there was there was all kinds of weird... The, the prelude to that game was strange as well because I think Didier Drogba had been criticised for diving by Rafa Benitez, if I'm right, and Drogba scored and then celebrated by diving in front of the, <laughs> the technical area. Ryan Babel scored an absurd goal. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think... It, it, just strange. But, it, but then on the basis of um, what those games have been in the past, because there was that period a few years before when... Chelsea played out game after game of chess match, essentially, where it was nervy and tight and and decided on these tiny little margins. It was almost as if that was the night the dam burst on the rivalry <laughs> and you just got goal after goal. I can't remember the name. Hey, what was the name of the, the, the fullback he used to take free kicks? The Brazilian really, fullback. Really, it. It, was, it was an it. amazing yeah. goal. Yeah, I, yeah. Probably one of the, because of the context of how crazy the game got, it was the opener. I mean, it was basically, it was on the wing practically and it was an in-swinging free kick. Everyone's expecting it to go into the box. He sees Petr Cech slightly too far to his right and basically just curls it into the near post. It was it was sensational. <laughs> it really was. But the free kick that you remember from the game is by Alex, who I think made it 2-2 two, two, two at the time. Absolutely swazzed it, didn't he? he yeah, it was one yeah. of those, hits it with the instep. But but the outside of his instep and it's it, it's power, but it's outside of the foot swerve and it like Pepe Reina's it yeah he doesn't get anywhere near it. So yeah, it was it, like the um, do you remember how Julian Tix used to take penalties? Yes, it was like the free yeah. kick version of that, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wish yeah, it's one. Of, sometimes you just got to leather it, haven't you? And uh, <laughs> and that's what Alex did. I, I looked at the stats because I, I'm glad you brought up that because Chelsea were very solid. This wasn't a vintage Liverpool team, by the way. It, it was quite weak by their standards before and after. So Chelsea made a meal of it, in my opinion, because they had a midfield of Balak, Lampard and Essien that night. I mean, wow, that is that is pure, pure class, isn't it? But yeah, it comes on the backdrop of, in the Premier League, Chelsea all season at Stamford Bridge conceded 12 goals. And that night they conceded four. So it's that's how mad that match was. Yeah. Talking of madness, you've chosen Euro 96, Seb, as your tournament focus. In a way, it's football history and, and pizza commercials, isn't it? Because <laughs> of the way England went out. But that was a tournament which absolutely captivated the nation. You know, possibly, you know, when we look back, we, we talked about Italian 90. Euro 96 was probably on that level, wasn't it? I think so. I think Euro 96 is also, it occurs in this sort of cultural sweet spot in England. If you remember that summer, the sun was out, it was warm, sort of the, the, the country was heading towards a, a new Labour government eventually. The Britpop scene was kind of at its zenith, at its apex. It's really interesting. I, I, I mean, I obviously, like the cliche recollections of Euro 96 are the game against the Dutch, the, 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 the passion play against the Germans, that kind of stuff. I just remember it as a really interesting time and, and I, I think I think over the years it's very easy to sort of to, to draw a kind of 
a before and after line between what football was and what football would become. And I, I think that reflects in the sort of the coverage that it attracted. Now, if we think back to the way the English, the English squad was treated before the competition. So I'm thinking like dentist chairs and TVs getting broken on flights back from Hong Kong, that kind of stuff. And then you sort of, you had the birth of footballer as not the sort of the, the, the Paul Gascoigne comedy figure, but like almost sort of celebrities, heroes. And you, you go from Euro 96 into a, a kind of a new era, obviously defined by someone like, like David Beckham. But it's, it's very, very interesting just because I, I think, I remember during the 2018 World Cup, there were all those photos, there's all those images of pints being thrown into the air and, you know, football becoming this, these, the, the England games becoming these big cultural events for the population and for people that don't take a regular interest in in the Premier League or the Football League or or England games generally. And I think you can trace a lot of that back to Euro 96 in how the population kind of got swept along in it. It's a happy memory. Obviously it ended in a less than happy way, but I think it's a, ironically, it's not actually a particularly good tournament. I know people think that it is and, and they think that also that England played terrifically all the way through. And they really didn't. They, they, they played well twice in two separate games and really for just about an hour in both of them. And it's actually not the very most, it's not the very best, you know, uh, competition. But yet it has this incredibly warm reputation. And I think for people probably from their mid 40s to their early 30s, it is a, it, it occupies a very, very strange place in their minds. There's not much to see beyond Karol Poborski's ridiculous goal, of course, and, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of nice England moments. It's mm-hmm. a, yeah, I, I also, let me recommend something. I, I was reading um, a book by John Harris called The Last Party, which deals with not Euro 96, but what England was, what the UK was at that time. And I think for people that weren't alive at the time or who, who aren't old enough to remember, that's a really good way of discovering what the country was like at that moment and that's an important part of understanding what year 96 was i think mm. yeah and, and you know as usual i mm. gaza was left right and and center on the whole thing you know people do remember that dentist chair yeah. celebration against the scots and that goal in particular i must have seen it you know a gazillion times mm. interesting because scotland were the only other home nation to qualify and they were only knocked out because of uh, Patrick Clivert's late consolation <laughs> goal against England, which made it 4-1. So it was yeah. bittersweet for the uh, Scots, wasn't it? That's a real shame, wasn't it, when that happened, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I remember the build-up as well, because cause I was a footballer at the time. I, you know, I could have played in it. It was the first tournament, really, I, I could have played in. I'd played with a few of the England players, Gary Neville, I'd played with David Seaman, Tony Adams, David Platt, Bergkamp for Holland. So so it was weird for me to watch it in a way, but also really thrilling. And Gaza was superb, obviously that. But but it's almost like that that dentist chair incident where the players basically just got absolutely leathered in Hong Kong, wasn't it, that, leading up to the tournament that... Uh, allegedly, my lad. Yeah, allegedly, yeah, allegedly. But but it's almost like from that was the last stand. It, it doesn't happen. It's never happened since football kind of changed. Arsene Wenger came in, and footballers started to look after themselves much much better, didn't they? So it was almost the end of that particular era off the pitch. Personally, I remember feeling just sheer joy for David Seaman when he was the hero of, of the shootout against Spain in the quarters. Brilliant from him and obviously Stuart Pearce. That was a great moment, wasn't it? When he got the redemption, scoring his penalty. I also think that Venables was really good. Yeah. I think he was one of our best managers. Taxi leaves, fan, fantastic. Obviously, Christmas tree is the famous formation he, he had. But I remember that someone like Gary Neville was great because one minute he was a third centre-back, the next he was a, he was a proper right-back. It was... It was one of the first times I'd seen a flu, truly fluid system of, of play. We, we'd, we'd grown used to 4-4-2 or 3-5-2. This was more fluid from England. And I do remember Tony Adams absolutely coming back from that tournament in the summer, in pre-season. And he was almost like a changed man in terms of, no, 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 we can do this. We can interchange like this and blah, blah, blah. He, he, was, he was incredibly enthused by, by Venables, I think, and, and what... And the way that England had played in that tournament, it was different and it worked. And I, I think that was ours to win because 
that wasn't a great German side that beat us on penalties. It wasn't vintage Germany. That I think was a was a missed opportunity. There was um, there's a there's a, a really lovely anecdote about Paul Gascoigne amongst other less lovely anecdotes about Paul Gascoigne from that time. But apparently, according to uh, Robbie Fowler's autobiography, like there was a game where England would travel in from I think they they were they were staying somewhere near Burnham Beaches. Makes sense. And yeah. um, they would get to Wembley. Everyone got off the coach apart from Gaza, who was sat on the coach with with three lions playing full blast and yeah. him in floods of tears just by himself <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it but yeah i mean three lines what what it was just anthemic isn't it what an anthem and yeah you, you whenever you hear that song it just takes you right back to, yeah, to euro 96 yeah, and yeah. and that's that's what's so special uh, about that tournament yeah well you know i've got to draw it all together now and i suppose in euro 96 football came home I'm wondering now, as we said right at the top of the show, what football will come home to in a couple of months' time. You know, I'm thinking this week, for me, one of the saddest news events, anyway, in football terms, was confirmation that, that Real had gone bust. Now, that's an important community club gone, just like that. And I fear many more will follow. You know, as we've discussed, the landscape's in the process of changing. And as Joni Mitchell sang with such foresight, we won't know what we've got until it's gone. So thanks to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please stay safe out there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.